is John Ray. I'm one of the elders here. I'm the one in charge of teaching, and uh, it was a crazy idea to start with. We took about 60 energetic, zealous, but untrained missionary students, crammed them onto an old trailways bus that had over 2 million miles on it when it was retired, and then we got it, loaded it up to do ministry all through Mexico down to Central America during the Civil War. And the further south we got, the more the adventures increased. Um, If you've ever blown a tire on a bus while you're driving a bus in the middle of rush hour traffic in Mexico City, it's an adventure. If you've ever driven down southern Mexico where the winds are blowing so strong that they're blowing 18-wheelers off the road, it's an adventure. If you've ever gotten up in the mountains of Guatemala where the hills are so steep, we had to take everybody off the bus and push the bus to get it to the top of the hill, it's an adventure. But maybe the craziest adventure of that whole trip was we were, we were coming out of Guatemala and we were going into El Salvador and we had a place to stay in San Salvador that night, warm bed, hot meal, uh, nice place to stay, but we were running late as normal uh, with that bus. We broke down over 20 times on that trip, various places. And uh, <clears throat> we pulled into the frontera, the border, and uh, they, said, they said, it's closed, you can't, you can't leave. I'm like, well, what do you mean we can't leave? They're like, well, there's grill activity. We think there's, they're out there, it's night, it's not safe for you to drive, you, need to, you can't go. And we're like, well, we'll go back. And they go, no, 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 you, you can't go. The road's closed. Now, this particular frontera was out in the middle of the jungle. Nothing else around it. So we were stuck for the night. And there was a low wall that went across the way that you could kind of somewhat get a little bit comfortable, at least stretched out after being cooped up in the bus seat all day. But they had these stadium lights on at night, shining into the jungle because it was a border outpost during the Civil War. And those lights, I swear, attracted every lizard, bat, bug, snake, for a hundred miles around. They came in. You, you know what it's like in the south when you stand under a lamp pole and you see the, the crickets and stuff? Well, there were, those were bats down there. I mean, it was just thick with bats under there. Stuff crawling over, so, so half the team would lay out and try to cover your eyes and get a little sleep while the other team was chasing stuff off, trying to keep it away from you the whole night. And, uh, and I'll never forget, you know, in the midst of this, just watching the soldiers as they stayed behind their sandbags with their machine guns pointed out into the darkness. Because what we saw at the end of the road was a, was a hot meal and a warm bed. What they saw was the enemy out in the darkness of the jungle. We were looking in the same direction, but we were seeing two very different things. This week in our text, we're going to see something similar to that. We're going to encounter a situation where the people are seeing one thing, and Jesus is seeing another. So let's pray and see if we can see what Jesus sees. 
Abba, thank you for gathering us here today. You have brought us together. You have called us, set us apart. You are knitting us into your body, your bride, for your glory and for the healing of the world and for our salvation. So Jesus, let your words go deep within us. Let them change us, transform us. As painful as that can be at times, Jesus, we give you permission. We give you permission to work your word in us this morning. And we pray this in your mighty name. Amen. So we're picking up our text this week. Last week, Daryl did a, a fantastic, our friend Daryl Harvey did a fantastic job of, of talking about the calling of the disciples. And immediately after that, the part that we're kind of skipping over as we move through this Epiphany series is where Jesus gathers people together and he gives them what's commonly known as the Sermon on the Mount. In Luke, it's given on a plane, but it's, it's essentially the same context. And as we talked about when we went through the Synoptic Gospels, we understand that Jesus probably gave that sermon or that teaching in multiple times in multiple places. But he gives them that. And then he goes in to where we pick up in Luke chapter 7, verse 1. It said, after Jesus had finished teaching all this to the people, the Sermon on the Mount, he entered Capernaum. <clears throat> a centurion there had a slave who was highly regarded, but who was sick to the point of death. When the centurion heard about Jesus, he sent some Jewish elders to him, asking him to come and heal his slave. When they came to Jesus, they urged him earnestly, he is worthy to have you do this for him because he loves our nation and even built our synagogue. Now, we, we have to see there's two highly unusual things happening here. Again, we have to read this text with new eyes. The first thing is that the Jewish elders would even have anything to do with a Roman, especially a Roman military commander. That, that a Roman centurion was in Capernaum is essentially he was, he was part of the occupying force. He was, part, he was the head of the occupying military force that had invaded, defeated, killed, enslaved, and now ruled over this people. And in general, the Jews hated with a blinding passion the Romans. And yet we have this unusual situation. This, this Roman centurion seems to have a, a really good relationship with the elders of the town. And, and we see why. They, 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 they explain in their entreaty to Jesus, this, this guy loves this. He loves us, and, he, and he's built. He's even paid to build our synagogue with his own money. The other thing we see here is that this master, this Roman centurion, loves his slave. Because uh, James Covington brought out in our teaching team this week, while the word, it says, highly regarded here, that kind of sounds... That kind of sounds stiff. It kind of sounds a little bit standoffish. Really, this word could also be translated as this slave was precious to the centurion. He loved him. Paul uses this word when he talks about Epaphroditus in Philippians, that he's precious to him. So we see something else unusual, that, that this master actually holds the servant as something precious, not as a commodity, not just as a worker, but as a person. And the Jews want Jesus to help the centurion because of what the centurion had done for them. 
But I think Jesus goes with them for a very different reason, which we'll look at in a minute. But let's, let's get back to the text. So Jesus went with them. When he was not far from the house, the centurion sent friends to him to say, Lord, do not trouble yourself, for I am not worthy to have you come under my roof. This is why I did not presume to come to you. Instead, say your word, and my servant must be healed, for I too am a man set under authority with soldiers under me. I say to this one, go, and he goes. Another, come, and he comes. To this slave, do this, and he does that. When Jesus heard this, he was amazed at him. He turned and said to the crowd that followed him, I tell you, not even in Israel have I found such faith. So those who had been sent returned to the house, and they found the slave. Now, look at this. This centurion, this Roman, this occupier, seems to have a better grasp about who Jesus is than anybody else in the story so far. And as we talk about epiphany, as we talk about this understanding, this enlightenment of, what, of who Jesus is, it's important for us to recognize who are the people that are being enlightened. And it's really not even his followers yet. But here we see it's a Roman, an occupier, a Roman centurion. And not only does he understand who Jesus is, he understands his proper position to Jesus. He understands that he's not worthy. He understands that this person, even though the Roman has, the centurion has authority, this person has much more authority than he does. Jesus has more authority. The Roman centurion is not abasing himself. He's not talking bad about himself. He's like saying, oh, well, you know, I'm nobody. No, he says, look, I'm a man under authority. I just recognize your authority is much, much greater with that. Luke constantly represents the outcast, the Gentile, the women, the children. Everybody who's not supposed to get it, gets it with Jesus. In Luke, he is constantly showing us how Jesus is understood primarily and most often most passionately by the people who have been excluded by the people who are supposed to get it. It's the Romans. It's the women. It's the sick. It's the children. The Gentiles who have this. And he holds them up as models for us. All of us who come to Jesus for healing and salvation. But let's move on. So it says, soon afterwards, Jesus went to a town called Nain, and his disciples and a large crowd went with him. As he approached the town gate, a man who had died was being carried out, the only son of his mother, who was a widow, and a huge crowd from the town was with her. When the Lord saw her, he had compassion for her and said to her, do not weep. Then he came up and touched the bier, and those who carried it stood still. He said, young man, I say to you, get up. So the dead man sat up and began to speak, and Jesus gave him back to his 
mother. Wow, can you imagine? Can you imagine the scene? Can you imagine the grief? Whereas in the previous story, Jesus is sent for here, he enters in, they don't even see him. They're so consumed in their grief, they don't even recognize that he's there probably until he stands up and stops the procession with his hand. And this word, this is a favorite word here at Grace Church that none of us can pronounce. So James, just cover your ears uh, with this uh, as it. But it is splagnizomahi. We call it spaghetti monster sometimes. Uh, splagnizomahi. And it means to be moved in your guts. It's that feeling of, of visceral emotion. See, the, the, the people of this time, they felt like the seat of your emotions, the, that the seat of your love was not your heart, what we think of cardia, but was, was actually seated down here where you feel it, right? Like that roller coaster ride feeling when your stomach comes up into your chest or that feeling you get the first time that person you have a crush on notices you, right? The butterflies in the stomach. So that's that intense, visceral feeling that it says Jesus has here for this woman. He sees her when all she can see is death through her eyes, her tear-filled eyes. Jesus sees her. You see, he entered into the town, but he also entered into the woman's suffering. And listen, if you tell somebody who's grieving to stop crying, you had better do something about it. <laughs> because about the worst thing you can ever see to say to someone who's grieving is, hey, 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 it's okay, it's okay. Stop crying, stop crying, right? I mean, that, that is just the worst thing you can say to someone in the midst of their grief. Unless, unless, you have the power to turn everything around, which is what Jesus does. And not only does he enter into the suffering, but he enters into this, this death. We, we've talked about it here, and if you've been to, to church for any length, you know that the Jewish had ritual cleanliness and uncleanliness. They had all these laws. And, and one of the things you never did is you never touch a dead body. You just don't do it. You don't touch dead things. You got contaminated if you touch dead things. The only people who were expected to defile themselves in this were the family members, were those closest to who had to attend to the dead body. Everybody else was expected to stay far away. And Jesus walks up and puts his hands. It wasn't a casket. They, they carried him out wrapped in linen. He puts his hands on this dead body. And it wasn't just to heal him. Because we know, look, the, the last story, right? All he, Jesus, Jesus healed from way far away. He didn't have to touch the guy. We know that. It was already established in the previous story. He could just say, yeah, go, get up, dude. You're fine. Stand off. Hey, you, over there. You laying down. Yeah, you, get up, you know. He, he could have done that, but he didn't. He touched so he enters into this woman's suffering. He enters into the pain, the darkness of death. 
to turn it around with that. Well, as a result, the text goes on. It says, fear seized them all, and they began to glorify God, saying, a great prophet has appeared among us, and God has come to help his people. This report about Jesus circulated throughout Judea and the surrounding country. Can you imagine? Because listen, these are gold star miracles. (laughs) We talked about this in the teaching team. These are not the cheap tricks of some traveling magician. I mean, these are the real deal. These are things that you, no normal person did. You don't, you don't just heal someone from way far away. You don't just have someone come, and then you just say, go home, he's healed. That doesn't happen. You don't go up to a dead body, embalmed, wrapped, touch it, and that body gets up and starts to speak. These are those thin places where heaven is meeting earth. These are the kingdom coming type experiences that Jesus brings. These are the affirmation of the proclamation that the kingdom of God was at hand. And it's time to repent and stop living like it weren't. That's what's going on here. And that's why these miracles are so incredible. And that's why the people respond in the way that they do. And they respond because after these two miracles, they're starting to get it. They're starting, the, the, the mass of the people are starting to see, led by the centurions, led by the women, led by the outcasts, led by the, the kids, the adults, the grown-ups. <laughs> they're finally starting to see it, but they're still going to struggle. And next week, Andrew Brewer is going to talk about that struggle, about the intense tension this brought in and how they had to seek reassurance. Specifically, John had to seek reassurance, John the Baptist. But, but what do we see in these two stories? What do they tell us about the way Jesus sees and the way we are likewise to learn to see? Well, first of all, let's contrast the elders of Capernaum and Jesus and see and how they see the centurion. The centurion see the, 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 or the elders see the centurion as worthy of help because of what he did. Hey, he's shown nationalistic pride, and he's paid for a synagogue, so he deserves help. Jesus could care less. I don't think Jesus goes with him for that. I think Jesus knows something else. He could care less about that. You know what he sees? He sees, wait a minute, this guy sees his servant. Not as a commodity, not as an asset or a liability, but he sees, and he, has, he counts him as precious. You don't count an object as precious. This is a person that he sees. And he also sees faith. He also sees faith that is the result of understanding who he is in relationship to Jesus and therefore orienting his hopes towards Jesus. Because that's kind of what faith does. That's kind of what it means to have faith. Is we understand who we are, we understand who God is, and then as a result, we, we orient ourselves, we position ourselves so that that is where our hope comes from. So that is where our deliverance comes from. So that is where our healing comes from. So that is where our identity comes from. Where that faith turns us towards God to receive from God. 
that lack of faith is demonstrated in our constant striving, our constant posturing, our constant turning away, our constant orienting to other things. That demonstrates a lack of faith. The centurion here's faith is that he has oriented himself towards Jesus as the one who has the authority to do what only God can do. And the thing that is desperate for the centurion to have happen. One other thing is that I think the elders see Jesus as something of a healer, maybe even a prophet. But the centurion sees him as a king. The centurion, he's the first one to see his authority as a king, as a ruler, as a, in this thing. It's a, it's a Gentile, it's a unclean, it's an occupier. He's the one who gets Jesus. Now, and the people of Nain, I mean, they see a widow with a dead son. By this account, they don't even take notice of Jesus when he comes in. But he sees her. He sees this individual person. You ever feel like, like God doesn't see you? Do you ever feel like that? Like he just doesn't see you? Because in a way, both these things are about faith in, a, in an odd way. It's teaching us. It's not just that we orient ourselves towards Jesus, but that we understand Jesus is oriented towards us. That Jesus, he sees you in your exhaustion as a young parent. Feeling like you're never going to get another light sleep, right? He sees you in that. He sees you in your struggle in your business, where you feel like no matter how hard you work, you just can't catch the break. You're just, it's never going to work out. He sees you in the midst of your health crisis. Whether it is acute or whether it is chronic, he sees you. He sees you in your loneliness and in your addictions and in your anger and in your disappointment. He sees you in your death. See, Jesus demonstrates here there ain't nothing he's afraid to touch. I mean, we are, right? I mean, we're scared. Listen, death is scary. Death is scary. And this God who incarnates himself comes up and puts his hands on it to turn it around. He sees you. And he sees us. He chooses to feel all the feels with this. And as humans, you see, we're so hardwired to label people, to put them in boxes and categories. And none of us can escape that. And there's, nor is it necessarily always a bad thing, but more often than not, this labeling limits our imagination. 
You see, because once we start understanding that Jesus sees us, then we're free to see people beyond the label, beyond the color of their skin, beyond whether they're male or female, beyond those things. We start to see them, as Paul says, we no longer regard people according to the flesh. We regard them according to the Spirit, and in the Spirit there's neither Jew nor Gentile. Male or female. See, Paul's working. Jesus does all this, and then years later, Paul's reflecting back and hearing the story. He's got the Holy Spirit in him, and he's, he's putting words to it. He's just giving us a description of the way Jesus acted, of what he's doing here. And so we have to learn to see beyond those labels. We need to see beyond those things If the kingdom of God is about anything, it is about shalom, reconciliation, redemption, restoration. It is the victory of life over death, freedom over oppression, knowledge over ignorance. It is not one race over another, or one political party over another, or one country over another, or one church over another, or one household over another. It is the proclamation of our allegiance to the God of all creation, the Savior of the world, the healer of all nations and ethnicities and abilities. The temptation has always been to reduce Jesus to a tribal deity. And it is so easy for us to do when we are viewing ourselves and others through human eyes instead of the eyes of Jesus that see. Jesus sees you. He sees us. And what that does is it frees us up likewise then to see others as Jesus sees others. Not as it would be dictated to by our flesh. And this is the main task. This is one of the main tasks for us who are followers of Jesus is learning to see things and people the way Jesus sees them. We'll never fully live. We'll never love purely. We'll never serve humbly unless we can see things in people as Jesus sees them. This isn't easy for us. This is a struggle. It's developed by practice and habit, by recognizing the clouds and the prejudices. Bring Aloha's image back up here. You know, she posted this to her, to her Facebook, and I, I got to tell you, it, it took me a while to realize what it was. And I, I debated whether to show the image. I think most of us have seen it, the news image of the boy in the back of the ambulance there in Aleppo. And y'all, I couldn't, I couldn't do it. I couldn't bring it up. It's too powerful for me. I couldn't bring it up. And I didn't see that the first time I saw this. I, didn't, I wasn't quite sure what it was. And then as I looked closely at it, and then I saw what it was, it just took my breath away. It took my breath away to see what this is. And I think Aloha's vision here is the imagination of Jesus. I think you are seeing as Jesus sees in this piece. 
And that's how I want to see. That's how I want to see. And that's how I want to be seen, too, with that. We need to see like Jesus. We need to be seen by Jesus. We need to reject seeing people as commodity, as an asset or a liability. We need to reject the labels that sort, rank, rate, reject people. Seeing like Jesus leads us to humble ourselves. Seeing like Jesus leads us to enter into the suffering of others. Seeing like Jesus leads us to find our hope, healing, and salvation in Jesus. And seeing like Jesus leads us to audacious praise. So I'm going to invite the worship team back up. And as we do this transition, we take communion here at Grace Church as part of that practice, that habit of learning to see and be seen like Jesus. And so we come to the table, we come to the cup and to the tray, and we hold those elements, hold them in your hand and look at them. And see Jesus there. See the God who gave himself. See the God who touched and entered into our death and yet commands life to come out of it. See the God who feeds us, tangibly takes us as we take him into our body. And then likewise, as we do this, this is time to reflect, this is time to pray. If you need to be prayed with someone or you feel like you're supposed to pray for someone, this is, this is the time to do that. You have the freedom to do that. We take an offering as well to share in the needs here and, and beyond with that. Um, let me just say this as I close. This, this, is, this isn't easy. And honestly, you can't do it. It's not something you just accomplish by effort. You can't just effort your way into it. It's something that happens by faith. It's something that happens by faith. So let's enter into that faith as a gift and as a call this week. And let's let this word go deep within us and change the way that we see. Thank you for being here this morning.